Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and today I'm speaking with James McNabb, the Portfolio Manager for the Equasia Enhanced Credit Fund. As part of our special editions of COVID-19 response communications, I've decided to speak with James again after speaking with him previously on the podcast to talk about the credit strategy that he manages, which is mainly exposed to residential mortgage-backed securities and asset-backed finance, to see how they've fared during COVID-19 and the dislocation that we've seen in markets, and more importantly, how they're positioned going forward. The fund that he manages has returned 6.7% compound annual growth rate since inception, and over the last year returned 4.14% as it's dealt with a much lower interest rate environment. However, it had its first negative return of 0.49% in March as markets became very dislocated as a result of COVID-19. Please remember this podcast isn't specific advice or a recommendation, and we encourage people to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to seek financial advice before making any investments. Please keep the feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. I'm really enjoying all the feedback and the ideas that we're getting. Please keep them coming. I hope you enjoy and find this episode helpful. James, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Thank you for joining us. A pleasure again, David. James, perhaps you could kick off by giving uh, our listeners a quick uh, thumbnail sketch or background as to uh, the strat. For, well, firstly, to Equasia and also the strategy you run for Equasia, please. Yeah, sure. Look, Equasia has been around for about 10 years. We uh, essentially spun out of the old Avon Emro Bank. Uh, we set up initially as a corporate advisory boutique, but very early on, we, uh, we started doing funds management in the credit space. We've had five credit funds, the first two of which are closed. I manage the number three, which is the, the big one, the flagship fund, which has been going for eight and a half odd years. And we have a couple of offerings as well. Um, so with a firm like ours, we have a very strong background in credit and fixed income, and we're putting that to work on behalf of investors. And as a quick reminder for clients and listeners, what, what does credit mean and what does that entail? Yeah. What type of underlying assets are inside that portfolio? Well, credit, credit ultimately is, is always about loans. Um, and we, we can sort of range across a, quite a spectrum of things. And we have been in the past quite big in corporate lending. We are right now only in what we call the asset back space. So our loans are against pools of mortgages and other kinds of uh, security against other kinds of, of, of equipment and property and whatnot. So look, we, we chose a couple of years ago to exit the corporate space, not because we had a negative view about corporates, more about the, the sort of risk return we were getting there. Okay, so if, if I think I'm right in looking at one of your latest monthly updates, um, a, a bit over, well, majority of your exposure is to residential mortgage-backed securities, yeah, right. is that, and then you've got asset-backed securities, yep. which might be the finance or credit that sits behind the leasing of photocopiers and business equipment, that type of Things thing. Things like that, yeah, yeah, broadly speaking. Yeah. Okay. Well, Tariq, now we're putting out a series of podcasts around COVID-19, which um, has been a huge 
area of flux in markets and, and upheaval and changes. We're, we're doing this cross Zoom. Uh, I'm still in the home office. You guys are, are sort of coming back with less, less people. Um, perhaps you could give, give our listeners a quick thumbnail sketch for how the credit fund has fared during the period and what sure. you've observed and how you've positioned the fund. Yeah, look, I guess the big, the big headline is we, we had uh, our first 102 months were all positive and month 103, which was March, we were minus 0.49%, our first ever negative month. Um, and look, that's just a reflection of the way the markets have been, been performing. So for us, the first thing to look at really is the credit quality of the assets. I mean, and, you know, if we've lent money out, we're going to get it back. Um, and we do a lot of work around that and very satisfied with the things that we've lent against. We always have significant cash buffers ahead of us and all sorts of other mechanisms in there. So look, the next thing that happens is we do, while we don't have a lot of market exposure, we have some, uh, most of the book is mark to market. Um, and because spreads have been widening in March and April, that's why we saw a negative performance in the month of March. So look, for us, there's a couple of things. Um, so on the fundamental side, we're pretty happy with the portfolio as it is. We set it up like that. Um, on the, the sort of the performance itself, negative month in March, but not a big one. And that's sort of to be expected. Um, look, the other thing that's really um, interesting in our market is just where liquidity is. Um, we've seen a real, a real absence of liquidity in the market for the last sort of four or six weeks. Um, and that sort of had, a, had effects for us in terms of being able to realise assets at decent prices for for people who are trying to exit. So James, can we just back up a little bit there? I think a lot of our investors typically are you know, quite strong on property, quite strong on equities, um, and then they understand a bond and then, you, know, you, you lend someone some money and they pay you back some interest, then you get your capital back at, at the end or, or similar, depending on the structure of it. Um, what they're not always afraid with is the fact when you go into an investment like this or you provide the funding for a pool that then provides residential mortgage-backed securities or lends that money out against houses or against assets, that the mark-to-market nature of them and how they trade can, can lead to you know, spreads widening. Can you just talk yeah. a little bit about how that comes about so our clients uh, understand how sure. you can have a negative month even though the the running yield or the yield of those underlying assets is still very positive. Yeah, look, it's, it's a, the, the price we pay for being in a mark-to-market paradigm. So look, we, I, I had a background as a trader, so I really like assets that mark-to-market. Um, otherwise, you're relying on the manager to sort of work out what they think they're worth, and there's all sorts of risks in that. So look, we, uh, most of our portfolio is mark-to-market. We use an independent third-party pricing source, which is the market standard. Um, and they give us prices for everything. They actually do it, do it daily, although we only measure it every, every month. Um, and we do that. And what they do is they sort of react to supply and demand in the market. And as a consequence, uh, during March, we saw our prices drift off a bit, which is why we had that negative performance. So that isn't, that just, and to pick up your point, that isn't a reflection on the assets themselves, uh, any sort of increase or decrease in quality. It's just around the price that the market's willing to pay for them the fact that there was such a flight to cash and in some markets, you know, finding yeah. a buyer for any asset yeah. Yeah, was, was hard. And I think if but, we sort of, if we step back to the middle of March, no one knew, no one knew what was going on. It's a, it's a, I think it's a clearer picture now. Um, and we are starting to see liquidity come back. 
But in the middle of March, no one knew whether the stock market was going down 25% or 50% or what was going to happen. Was unemployment going to be 20%? Like no one knew any of this stuff. In the absence of information, the market just, our market kind of seizes up. And James, how was this crisis or this large shock to the system different to the GFC from your perspective? Well, look, I think top level, it's very different. Um, so the GFC started out as a financial crisis and it kept going that way. And I think for those of us who are in the middle of it, the thing that wasn't obvious at the time was kind of whether it would ever end. And in a sense, it never did. Interest rates stopped very low. And sort of how and why it would end. This, this, is a, this is a started out as a health crisis. And the economic impacts of it are mostly because of government action. So governments have told people to close up shop and not work and whatnot. So I think it's a, quite a different thing. So it's driven, by, it's driven by a thing that's not in itself financial. I think that's got a couple of effects. One of them is that, is that there's more of a, I think there's more of a, a sense that there's a finite time this will go on for. And we can all sort of look, look for, is it six months, is it three months, is it 12 months, wherever it is. But I think we all think that there is a point when this will be over. Um, and the trick is to sort of to bridge to the other side of it. And I think the other thing is, as I did allude to before, it's, it's around the fact that the economic damage has mostly been done by governments acting responsibly, but it's still government actions. And so therefore people have a call on the governments to help remediate some of that, some of that pain. And, and what are some of the actions you've seen governments take yeah. to, um, you know, ensure that markets are still liquid, yeah. that aren't totally dislocated? I think the flow of credits and non-bank sector and so forth is yeah. topical. Can I get you to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Please? Look, we, we've we've seen a lot. We've seen um, certainly at the very top level, the thing that we worry about most is is unemployment, and we've seen, you know, the the big packages like the the, the job keeper package, which was very very important for us. But sort of in terms of the market itself, we know that the, the, um, the government provide a lot of funding to the banks. It doesn't really affect us much. Most of our borrowers are non-banks. But in the non-bank sector, they've been very much on the front foot. So what they did pretty early on was they announced a $15 billion fund within the Treasury Department, um, which was there to sort of ensure the integrity of the securitization markets. And I think from a public policy perspective, they took the view that there are a lot of borrowers who are going to the non-banks and who will continue to go to the non-banks and they need that market to continue. Um, otherwise, significant parts of the economy come, come to a halt. So they've put in place a program to support issues in our market, securitization, both in the primary market and secondary, and also behind the scenes to do some really important um, sort of uh, plugging of temporary gaps that open up in some of the structures because of payment holidays. So, you know, for instance, if you've, you've borrowed money to buy a ute and you're a tradie and you, you, some COVID thing dislocates your payments and you can't make payment for a couple of months. Um, in the structures, uh, we need to ensure that there's enough interest coming in to pay all the bonds and the government is putting forward some structures to, to fix that. Um, and I think that was the thing that they recognised really early on. It's quite an, an esoteric thing, um, but it's, it's an important gap that needs to be filled. And for us, it gave us a lot of confidence that the people who were in charge of this process in government really understood what they were doing because this is pretty, a pretty technical area um, and they were willing to, to do a lot with it. So within, I think within about three or four days of the bill going through parliament to set this thing up, 
they had supported a, a billion dollar RMBS issue like within a couple of days. So I think that was all very encouraging for us. And I think we're sort of hearing it's what, today's Tuesday. I think by the end of the week, there'll be a couple more issues out there. So for us, it sort of feels like um, the government's played a, a really interesting and proactive role. Their philosophy in all this is they don't, they don't like giving away public money just for the sake of it. But if they see public money can be used to bridge us to a solution, then, that, then they will do that. And how have you seen liquidity re react? You mentioned before liquidity just vanished from the market yeah. very suddenly. How, how have you seen it track yeah. since then? It's come back very slowly. Um, so in the last couple of weeks, um, kind of as an experiment, I've been trying to sell paper. Um, and it's pretty heavy going. And I think that that gives me confidence that it's not so much a question of price. It's just about the market having a finite amount of appetite for this stuff. And I think what it is, is a lot of people like me who are the natural advisors paper, we're sort of sitting on our hands for a bit. We, we have on the one hand, we've got calls on some private warehouse deals we're doing. We have redemptions to facilitate and we're a bit reluctant to put new money in the market. Well, having said that, it is, I think it's an ideal time to put money in the market because for me, the underlying assets are still good. They're just a bit cheaper. So look, we're so still waiting to see liquidity come back. What, what do those opportunities look like and, and feel like that you're sort of alluding to? Well, I think, I think during, the, during the middle of March, there were some just extreme bargains um, that you need to be in the right place at the right time. Even now, we're seeing there, is, there are transactions being printed, which are similar to the old ones. Uh, just the, the spreads are wider. So I think... You know, if you if you have faith in the underlying system, I think the the assets repricing. Well, having said that, because we're in a mark to market world, uh, all of our all of our existing assets are repriced at new levels, which was sort of part of why we took a hit in performance in March. It does mean that our carry going forward is going to be a little bit higher because we kind of like we've invested at the at the new levels anyway. So, so what's the running yield of the underlying uh, investments at the moment? Yeah, look, uh, running yield on our funds about five percent. Yeah. Okay, and and you talked a little bit about if the thesis still holds. Um, I take it that you're most concerned about people being able to service their mortgages yeah. in the long term, and there's sort of been a bridge over the short term where. You know, everybody's allowed to sort of ring their bank and tell them to put it on hold mm. and I will mm. capitalise the interest and, and, and take a pause. So it seems like, you know, non-bank lenders, would, I'd imagine they would be doing the same, the type of people yes. you're financing and yeah. finance companies where you're providing the investment pool or the warehouse to go into some sort of machinery or business equipment. Um, people can ring up and say, look, we've been hit by COVID, whatever it is, and we're, we're putting this on hold. What sort of stress testing or comfort are you being given that the average um, property holder that you're lending to or the business for the machinery that you're, le you're lending to or giving the back-end finance to is going to be able to service that yeah. in the long term? What, what, what comfort do you have that you know, immigration isn't going to be severely hit, therefore property prices are going to come off? Um, unemployment's going to be dislocated permanently for a long time, et cetera. What, what sort of stress testing yeah. have you done and what sort of comfort can you give listeners and or investors in the fund at the moment? Yeah, look, these are all things that we, we, we think about. 
Um, I talk, the issue is we're involved in, I talk to regularly, um, and the whole issue about hardship has been um, very much front of mind. Um, and typically what they'll do is if you ring up and you're inquiring about hardship, it turns out about a significant proportion of those are just people asking, just in case. Um, the ones who want to go through it, they need to go through a process which typically involves the issue of making sure that their, their hardship is related to COVID. It's not just something that would have happened anyway. So, you know, if you can substantiate that, suppose you worked at one of the businesses that's gone under, you know, that's kind of obvious. Or maybe you're self-employed and you, whatever, um, your contracts have dried up. So that kind of thing will happen. Um, we, we see that a lot. We, um, in terms of real estate, we think it will come off a bit you know, 10, 15%, but this is, this happened early last year as well. And that in itself is not enough to affect the performance of the fund. <clears throat> you need a few other things to happen. So look, we, we look at that in conjunction with, um, with, with unemployment and look from our perspective, things like JobKeeper is very welcome because it tries to get people still employed so that if and when things start up, they can pretty easily snap back into their old position. Now that won't work perfectly. And there will be people. There will be people in this who've lost their jobs who won't get their jobs back, and and they will end up defaulting on their loans. We we know that, but that's in the transactions we're in. There are always defaults anyway. It's just the question of the, the magnitude of them. So we we do things like we'll we'll go through the portfolios and and look at um, you know what if 10, 15, 20 percent of the borrowers default and what happens to asset prices and try and get a sense for at what point does that start to impact our, um, our investors. Look, we, we've starting to see some interesting analysis coming up from the issuers. Uh, so a couple of them released in the last two days um, with uh, things like, you know, they'll have maybe 10% of their borrowers have applied for hardship. Uh, and so for those individuals, they'll capitalize interest for a couple of months. But it turns out in a lot of these structures, there's enough there's enough sort of extra fat in the deals that it can that it, they can afford to have, in some cases like 20, 25% of people not paying for up to a year, and the thing can still say can still pay its 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 bondholders. Um, so look, we take a lot of comfort from the just the robustness of these of these structures. I mean, it's worth just back to the GFC. So we're just pointing out that no rated mortgage bond defaulted in the GFC. Uh, and there were some pretty dreadful bonds out there, but they all they all paid out in the end. So look, we're sort of relying on um, on uh, on um, the collective behaviour of a bunch of, of homeowners. If unemployment gets to thirty percent and house prices go down by fifty percent, then yes, we will we will hit a sandbar. But it's a question of sort of how how likely you think that scenario is. James, what do you think unemployment's going to get to then? Oh, uh, look. That's that's a question I'm, I'm, I really struggle with. Um, you know, I, I, I look at what the banks say. Um, there's also arguments about do you count people who've been who no longer have jobs because of COVID? Are they unemployed? So look, I, I, it's not a that's not a, a fight I'm going to get into right now. James, uh, what would you for existing investors or people considering coming into the fund now? What sort of uh, return profile for the next sort of 12, 18 months, would you encourage them to think about? Well, David, I can't, I can't make comments about future performance, but I will say, look, we've been running at sort of five odd percent as a running yield for the last couple of years. And I 
can't think why it would be significantly different. It's, uh, it's, that's probably as good as a, good a non-answer as I, as I can give you. <laughs> I'll try to pin you down anyway. <laughs> um, turn this around the other way. What um, environment in six months' time would be an absolute nightmare for you? And I think you've probably flagged uh, it yeah. in unemployment at 30 to 40%. Um, and, and, I, and I suppose the corollary of that is, you know, your dream would be everybody back to work as soon yeah. as possible and servicing high. Maybe if I can ask you, in your usual modelling, um, what sort of default rate do you typically um, model into or allow for? Yeah, look, I, I, I like to, I like to uh, when I look at a pool, I like to... Um, invent scenarios around a, like a one in 10 default rate, which is, which is really high actually. Um, you need unemployment significantly higher than that for that to come through to our borrowers. Um, and so look, one of my favorite scenarios to run is a 25% house price decline and 10% default rate, which is unemployment rate quite a lot higher than 10%. Um, and we know that most of our securities can, can withstand that quite easily. It's on the margin, some of our higher paying positions may not, but you know that's why we get paid paid to hold those hold those positions. Um, and look, if you think about it, the average credit quality of our book is probably about around a triple B low investment grade. Triple B securities are stressed as a rule of thumb to around forty five percent house price decline. So look, there has to be an awful lot goes wrong before we start seeing that. I think for us the 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 the, the real concrete worry for us would be if we get to the end of the job keeper thing, which is I think is you know, five months from now, or whatever, five six months. If if things haven't gone anywhere back near to normal, and the government has to think about are they going to do another job keeper or what, and or do we have a second wave of infection? I think that's sort of when we start to see it. I have to say, look, we we look at things right now. It's sort of you know it looks like things are sort of going okay but there's always potential for a second wave. There's all sorts of, you know, second order effects of this dislocation. So look, we're, we're sort of very cautiously optimistic. James, I don't know how much attention you pay to your competitors, but it does appear to me that through this period, you've significantly outperformed some of your competitors. Yeah. What, do you, what do you put that down to? Oh, look, it's our, it's our fundamental thing. We don't take much market risk. Um, so the, our philosophy has always been about buying assets we think are good um, and that aren't very volatile and sitting on them and earning those returns. So what happens is when the market goes really gangbusters, we tend not to do as well as some of the people who are more active traders. But when we have situations like this, we do a lot better. Um, so our, our, our volatility is really low and that's mostly because of the way that the portfolio is designed. So I, I think about my job is making sure the credit fundamentals work and then we get paid back on all the positions rather than trying to predict where credit spreads or interest rates or FX are going. And James, you made the comment uh, before that during the GFC, no, no residential mortgage-backed bond issuances defaulted. What do you think the likelihood that any may default through this... Uh, this crisis? Oh, I think it's, it's, it's unlikely. However, how is it? It's, if, if this goes on for like two years, then we will see default. Um, but having said that, I mean, as a, a point I made earlier on, the structures we're in, there's always the defaults. There are defaults in the pools all the time. And, um, and one of the things I like about asset backs is that they're designed to withstand those. 
So I mean, if you make a if you make a loan to a corporate, uh, it's good until it's not, and when it's not good, it's a completely unique event around that corporate, and you know, it's, it works out's a horrific situation. Whereas the kind of things that we do is it'll be a pool of two thousand mortgages, and every month one or two of these people are going to go under, and there's a process around realizing the assets and where that money goes. So it's a much more straightforward position for us. Well, James, thank you very much for that. It's been most helpful for you to give us the update during this busy time. I know markets are quite frantic, so thank you very much for your time. Pleasure indeed. Um, before we finish up, is there any last sort of thought that you'd like to leave with any of our listeners um, that they should bear in mind during these times? Yeah, look, I think um, from, from our perspective, the performance of the fund in March and April sort of, I, I think, proves, proves out the concept. I mean, we had always said that, you know, you go into credit because it's a, it's a safe harbour. Um, you, you won't double your money, but you won't halve it either. Um, and I think for us, our worst ever month being March, we lost less than half a percent. I think that really shows the value of what, of what we do in, in preserving capital and giving stable returns. So I, I think it's been, it's been a great time for credit. I think it's, credit has sort of shown, shown what it does. Terrific. Well, thank you once again for joining us inside the road. Thanks, Jane. Uh, pleasure indeed. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.